The reverse GPS on the airboat only got us so far. Once we beached our transport at its starting location, I tethered it to a rope already knotted around the rotted base of a cypress tree, and we headed into a dense area of woods that didn't look much different than the area we'd been held captive. Without any discussion as to course of action, Carla jumped out of the boat with a gun and headed straight into the brush. Since I wasn't in the mood to chit-chat, I grudgingly followed behind her. Carla, I find it slightly disconcerting that the woman who, if I remember correctly, almost shot my balls off trying to gingerly pry a gun from beneath me with two fingers, has now got a rifle slung across her shoulders, with her arms dangling over it like she spent a fair amount of time hiking through leech-infested rice paddy fields in the Tan An Delta. I'm not going to lie. I was irritated. I wanted a drink. I wanted some goddamn calamine lotion for the mosquito bites. And I wanted, even more than both of the aforementioned, for Carla to be as irritated as I was. I'm not uncomfortable with guns anymore, Morneau. Carla turned and smiled over her shoulder at me. Muggs took me to the gun range a couple times. I'm not sure what about that last bit of information irritated me most. That I hadn't been aware of her secret gun training. That Muggs had taken her to the gun range and failed to mention it. Or that Carla seemed to be taking such pleasure in sharing the little nugget of information. Well now, isn't that interesting? I admit to having said this a little too loudly. I had a feeling you'd be a shitty teacher. So I asked Muggs, and he was happy to go with me. I see. I shoved my fists into my pockets. And exactly when did this gun training take place? A few months ago. Carla stopped in front of me and looked into the woods to our left. She leaned the rifle against a tree, combing her fingers through her hair, and then fastening a ponytail high on the top of her head. You look like Pebbles Flintstone. I nudged her aside, walked a few steps, turned my back to her, unzipped my pants, and peed all over the base of a nearby tree. Duly noted, Sir Cranky Pants. Feel like sharing what crawled up your ass and died? Or should I phone a friend for help? Carla grabbed a gun, popped her hands atop the muzzle, and rested her chin on them. I zipped up and closed the gap between us, relieving her of the firearm. I'm wondering if Muggs included any firearm safety training in his tender tutelage. Because the first rule of gun club is that you don't hold the muzzle under your chin. Unless you're interested in blowing the top of your head off. He mentioned safety training, but I haven't got it scheduled yet. We've only gone a couple times, and we were shooting a handgun. Then I noted the most disturbing thing about the rifle I held. So, you're bouncing around the woods with a weapon you know nothing about, which, I might add, doesn't even have the safety engaged. Remind me to have a word with Muggs when we get back to civilization. In the meantime, I'll take charge of the rifle, if you don't mind. I do mind. Thank you. This is my fight. 
Carla tried to swipe it from me. What fight are you referring to, Carla? You know what I'm talking about. Give me the gun. Why? Has hell frozen over? I busied myself with checking the rifle. Noticed it contained three live rounds. Carla scoffed, turned on her heel, and resumed walking into the thick brush. I double-checked to make sure the safety was engaged, tossed the rifle over my shoulder, and proceeded to make sure I'd gotten my point across. Might as well make the most of our time. So how about we go over a few gun safety rules? I didn't give her time to answer, other than some muttered, intelligible words I assumed were of the fuck-you variety. First, we always treat guns as if they are loaded, no matter what. Even if you know it's not loaded, you still handle it as if it were. Second, we always keep the firearm pointed in a safe direction, which doesn't include being propped under our chin. Third, we keep our finger off the trigger and outside the trigger guard until such time as we're absolutely ready to shoot something. Carla stopped abruptly and turned around to face me. Are we finished? Fourth, it is imperative that we're not only aware of our target, but also what lies beyond it. I'm going to need you to shut up now. Carla rubbed her face vigorously with both hands. What's eating you now, Lady Remington? Seriously, I don't want to hear your voice right now. I knew I was pushing it. She knew I was pushing it. And we both knew why. This might be a good time to talk about my drinking. For me, life is about waiting for my next drink. To some, this probably seems like a sad truth. Perhaps a pathetic, less than sympathetic one. But truths aren't always universal. While my truth might not be someone else's, it is what it is, and I'm nothing if not an unapologetic drunk. I am one of those simple folk who doesn't wish to stop drinking. There isn't now, nor has there been for many years, any desire to become sober. To suddenly morph into what some refer to as a functioning member of society. I function just fine. I get up, I eat, I work, I go home, I drink until the uneasy sounds of the day, coupled with the unwanted memories that descend each night, dull into a less searing, comfortable fuzz. Essentially, I drink myself into a dreamless stupor on a nightly basis. Obviously, due to that last bit, the first chunk of every morning is uncomfortable. The hard truth is this. When you drink three quarts of beer and a quarter bottle of rum, Every night, there comes a time when you can't remember your last solid bowel movement. It goes without saying that this also speaks to a liver and kidneys that aren't altogether delighted by the actions of their benefactor. My real profession, second to the one I grudgingly do to earn drinking money, is taking in enough alcohol on a daily basis to keep my body from experiencing unwanted side effects that surface from the lack of inundation it might encounter. A state of being my secretary has adroitly addressed on numerous occasions, most recently at breakfast, the morning we started our Trudy investigation. Fuck's sake, Morneau. You're doing a bang-up job of keeping your liver in the manner to which it has become accustomed. 
inundated. I get the shakes when I don't drink. Not just physical ones. I'm not a happy person when I reach the time of day when I'm generally disposed to becoming a more liquid entity. In other words, I get grumpy when I don't drink. An alcoholic spends an inordinate amount of time watching the clock. It's where the phrase, beer 30, comes from. We've all got that time we've assigned ourselves, which we believe is the appropriate time to get down to the business of drinking. We meaning the royal we, the inundated functioning we. Sure, there are those days, bad days, happy days, I don't give a fuck days. The ones where we start early enough that it's impossible to remember much about the following day. But for the functioning alcoholic, who has to strap on a profession and don the semblance of a happy face, we do what has to be done while simultaneously counting down to our personal glooming hour. For us, it's all about managing whatever it is we need to manage. Do whatever it is we need to do to get to that first, second, third, and so on, drink, that we've been thinking about since we awoke with a hangover. Like I told Carla, I'm not afraid of dying. Once you've experienced a metaphorical death, looking at the actual thing pales in comparison. Watching the days of Marjorie's life being compressed into long minutes and seconds by the cruel fist of fate, like a flower strangled in the hand of an unhappy god until she wilted into nothing more than the beautiful scent of a long-gone ache, was more than any person should be expected to bear. I already know death and its scars have left me apathetic. Looking at it now is like squinting at an eviction notice that slid off the office printer when I've let the toner cartridge run low. I'm staring at a faded page of information I have no vested interest in. It's just a pale photocopy of someone else's foregone conclusion. The importance of the aforementioned chunk of information is mostly due to the fact that we've reached a point in this story where I've hit that need for my beer 30 moment. I'm not happy about feeling as shitty as I do. And my normal level of irritation has ratcheted up to a state of pissed off I haven't felt since I saw the gory crime scene photos taken at Carla's house after the murders. So there we were, traipsing through the mosquito-ridden Everglades in the middle of the night, and I was pushing Carla's buttons because I needed a drink. What's eating me? Carla's voice shot up two octaves, and the cicada contingent suddenly grew quiet. We both know I'm pissed because I need a drink. What's your excuse, Carla? My excuse is that I am stuck out here in hit country with someone who needs a drink, and let me just tell you, you are not very charming company when you're sober against your will. Duly noted, Pebbles. I couldn't resist taking another tiny jab. I think it's good we're both on the same page. Now, we can locate your ex and, as expeditiously as possible, get the hell out of here so I can remedy my current state of churlishness with the aid of something that has a nice, foamy head. <laughs> 